0: Welcome to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast between four friends, we're all theologians, we are from four different countries on three continents. My name is James Eglinton, I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh, I'm joined today by my friends Corey Brock, originally from the States, now a pastor here in Edinburgh and Scotland, Marina Stejong from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and Grace Utanto, who is originally from Jakarta, Indonesia, but who now teaches theology at RTS in the States. So this is a podcast, um, for listeners who are joining us um, this far into season one, it's a podcast where we think together in our four different contexts with our different backgrounds about theology, about life, um, and particularly about the neo-Calvinist tradition. So this um, tradition that began in the Netherlands uh, 100 or so years ago through figures like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavinck. Um, and it's a tradition that often gets spoken about in its significance as um, a tradition that's distinctively modern but also orthodox. So it's a branch of the Reformed Christian tradition. It's a it's Calvinistic, but it's not maybe what you could call paleo Calvinism. So. It's not just what was happening in Geneva in the 16th century, but instead um, it's an attempt to drive that same tradition forward into the the context of the 19th and the 20th centuries, and then for neo-Calvinists today into the 21st century. So the tradition gets associated a lot with those words, um, orthodox and modern. so a few years ago, I was I was talking to a friend in the Netherlands while I was I was there on a sabbatical. And I was writing a biography of Herman Bavinck and a Dutch friend asked me, you know, why is he so interesting or so significant that you would even you know, come here and uproot your family and, and move to the Netherlands to write about this guy. So I started to, trying to explain to her, oh, he does something that's very distinctive and, and and really interesting, which is, and then I started to talk about Orthodox and modern. You know, he's this recognizably Orthodox Christian theologically, but he's also so engaged with uh, everything that's going on around him in the modern context. And, and she asked, but why is it? Why is it good to be modern? Uh, Why, why, uh, and for her, this wasn't an an antithetical question. It was just that both of these concepts were quite new to her. Or the orthodox part less so. She was a Christian from an orthodox, theologically orthodox church, and got why that was a good thing. But the question of why it was also important to be modern was. it was just kind of a new question for her and it was an open question um, why does the modernity aspect matter so thankfully on the podcast we have corey brock who is author of a critically acclaimed book called orthodox yet modern Get i got the right way around corey right? yeah I should know this because i supervise your phd which had the same title before that so um let's i want to put it to corey first uh, you wrote a book on herman bavinck on how he handles these two issues together it was very focused on one particular modern figure Friedrich Schleiermacher, known as the father of modern theology, but then what Herman Bavink does with his theology. So Corey, talk to us about, I mean, even our key terms, you know, there's so many things that get jumbled together. Modern, modernity, modernism, modernization. Um, Can you unpack those a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So the word modern essentially means something that's recent. And so there's a way to be modern at any time in history. You can talk about Shakespeare having an aspect of modernity because he introduces an entirely new way of thinking about literature and how to do literature. But when we talk about the modern versus modernity or in distinction from modernity, modernity is typically registered as a unique time period of history and almost everybody in sociology, history, theology, philosophy looks at modernity and says it really begins with the Enlightenment and moves forward. So a lot of people will characterize modernity as the long 19th century. So from the French and American revolutions in the 1770s and 80s, all the way to World War One, right? But then uh, the postmodern is also an era of modernity. Uh, so we're still in, as many sociologists, historians would say, the era of modernity. And all of that, time marker is different from saying that something is modern. Uh, You can be in the era of modernity and yet not be a modern person. You can have something that uh, is situated within this time period or outside of it and yet appropriately call it modern or not. Right. So modernism or to be modern is something distinct from that. I mean, there's the, the difficulty with this question is that it's notoriously uh, vague, right? What, what, what does it mean to be modern? And you can have as many definitions of that uh, as you have thinkers that are writing about it. But uh, a, f- a few things I think that we think of when we think of modernity, or modernism, I should say, based on my way of categorizing the terms already. Um, modernism, the bad part of modernity, if you will, uh, is basically enlightenment thought at its peak and pinnacle. So modernism separates faith, for example, from the knowledge capacity. So things that you believe in can no longer be things that you claim to know. So faith and knowledge are separated. Uh, Modernism treats humans as blank slates. Um, So it tends toward a radical individualism. Uh, it, It pushes a person to have a very individualistic uh, path in the formation of their own personal identity. And so modernism is famous for increasing anxiety to the maximum because you're dependent on your own self to form your personal identity, for example. Uh, Modernism uh, suggests that humans have the capacity and also ought to dominate nature in a new way, in a way that's never been tried prior, so something like the development of an encyclopedia, uh, the search after an encyclopedic knowledge. uh, It it assumes that humans can potentially know everything if we have the right tools and the right scientific experiments to do that. So modernism produces positivism or scientism as we often think of it today. Uh, Modernism produces secularization in the sense of the privatization of religion. So today, it's a modern product that religion is, uh, is privatized and that there's this public sphere that is quote unquote neutral. That's a product of modernism. Um, I, I would say one way to summarize modernism is all in all, uh, modernism is where historical authorities are considered to be basically oppressive. Um, so religious dogma and uh, political authority of old like monarchy is thought to be in its very structures wrong, inadequate, uh, oppressive, uh, regardless of the the particular experience of that dogma or of that political authority in history. So that would be um, kind of some overarching things to talk about modernism. This all the negative side. Maybe somebody else would like to talk about the positives.
0: Well, you know, I think that when we start to parse out some of the complexities of how we use these terms and you even if you're thinking in a historical sense like you mentioned Shakespeare there you know the, the historians will talk about different phases of modernity with an early modern period which is actually you know takes us back into like the reformation era and kind of you know you're getting towards maybe even the medieval west and then you have you know, high modernity, late modernity, and so on. So there's there's historical change, um, but I think a way that I find very helpful under, in understanding it, and this is how I teach to my students as well, is not to think of the idea of the modern in any sense as monolithic or as unchangeable. So even if we start talking about it in a historical sense, what it meant for John Calvin to inhabit um, some period of, of modern culture, um, is a very different thing to what it means for us or for Herman Bavinck 100 years ago. So the ways that some scholars have tried to understand this uh, focus on that idea rather than just having monolithic modernity instead to talk about multiple modernities. So there's no single thing that we're talking about and that's actually a very it's a really liberating perspective to acquire rather than trying to straitjacket something that just doesn't fit in, in a straitjacket. So and I think the two main ways that people have tried to understand multiple modernities are to think about modernization as as a project that develops building layer upon layer so it's, it's actually rooted in a hegelian kind of philosophy of thesis antithesis synthesis so modernization is a process where um I mean, and it's all tied up with the developments of forms of capitalism and trade, and um where those are centered in different parts of the world to do with the development of globalization and so on so modernization means something different depending on which century you're in and where in the world you're talking about um but it's still kind of like it's, it's uniformly identifiable in each of these different periods of history. So modernity meant something different in the 17th century to the 19th, that it means something different in the 21st. But the way that I tend to think about multiple modernities is um, it's, it's influenced by a, a guy called Schmuel Eisenstadt um, who had a different kind of take on multiple modernities, which was to say that rather than this kind of stratified way of thinking about how it means something different century after century, his argument is that actually it means something different from person to person. And that's actually the nature of being a modern person. So modernity itself is is a game. It's a negotiation. It's a game of give and take. Uh, modern people themselves are constantly negotiating with the basic tenets of modernity, um, and always working out what it means for them. And I think that then starts to account for like, the point Corey was making: that just because somebody lives in a modern culture, that doesn't mean that they, you know, subscribe to the whole thing, as though they agree with every word of, you know, Enlightenment philosophy or something like that. Actually, the process is much more complicated than that. So I think a classic example of this. I mean, for a figure that we talk about a lot in the podcast this is Herman Bavinck, okay. So, um, in what sense is, uh, can we make sense of Herman Bavinck as a 19th, 20th century, theologically very conservative Christian as a modern person or someone who lives within modern culture? So a, a course that I teach here in Edinburgh every couple of years is by Immanuel Kant. It's called um, On How to Orient Yourself in Thinking. And that text by Kant is in two sections. The first section is all about how to think as a, in a with a modern epistemology, you're you know tending towards modernism, and it's the stuff that Corey was talking about that you can't know things that are you know what we call things that are in the realm of the the noumenal. Um, so you can't talk about having knowledge of God, but you can know other things, and there are things that you know by sense perception. So that's a modern epistemology. But the second half of the text by Kant is a is different. It's a modern view of society that says that people should be free to think whatever they want to think that the ruler of your country cannot tell you which opinions to hold that you should be free also to operate within particular like academic disciplines according to that discipline's own native logic so someone can't come from a stem department and tell you in the humanities you have to think in a particular way and also you should be free to live by your conscience as an individual on the basis of those two other things so you think for yourself you are, and you should have a, you should be able to live with your conscience and how you think about a particular topic or within a particular, you know, academic discipline or avenue of inquiry. So when I teach these two texts to my students, um, I bring it back to Herman Bavink as an example of someone who who really believed in the second half of that text by Kant, but not at all in the first half. And that for Herman Bavinck, he he thought as well that, you know, the state shouldn't enforce particular religious opinions. People should be free to be Calvinists or to be whatever. And and that's that's the kind of society that you want to live in, where you're not persecuted by the state because you fall out of line with the state's take on particular religious ideas. Um, But at the same time, Bavinck was really strongly against the first half of Kant's text. because having believed in the knowability of God. So the the ways that modern um, ideas then start to take shape are are actually very complex. And you have to look at particular individuals in modern culture. And I think when you do that, you realize that we're all doing this all the time. Um, Even in very theologically conservative reformed circles, you don't tend to hear many people saying that you know that when they think about Calvin and Servetus in the 16th century where someone was burned to death for not being Trinitarian. I can't remember the last time I heard a Calvinist today say that they think that should happen today. And in fact Calvinists tend to apologize for, for that and um, they've done so formally at different points as well in, in recent history. So we're all doing this anyway, um, negotiating with modernity if we live in the 21st century, I think that just for a lot of us, we don't realize that that's what we're doing and that all the time, we're constantly participating in multiple modernities.
2: Uh, thanks James, it's helpful you also given, uh, when, when, I, when I heard Corey start this talk, I was like, well, if you frame modernity this way, and it's of course completely correct, but then the new Calvinism almost appears to be an anti-modern movement because it opposes many of the things you just, you mentioned like the, the separation between uh, faith and knowledge, also seeing humans as a blank slate, um stuff like that but i think what is well, what is so strong and, and you mentioned this in in the example of human bathing so it's good about it, this tradition is that it makes explicit that it's partly anti-modern and it opposes certain strands of it um and also in, in in the in the new ways um modernity develops and new kinds of modernities come into place and whether it's postmodern or maybe hypermodern, people in debate with, which which name applies best but that there are also many many ways in which is positive um in which we think it's it's a good thing and but i was about to, to ask cory that question how did you how did you in your book when you when you compared boving to, to and look how he used it could you could you mention examples of how he well uses a modern theologian Schleiermacher and how he draws and learns from it how they how they are they similar from each other, and what are what are more positive things? Maybe adding to what James has already said.
1: Yeah, well, well your point there, and to both of you, both of y'all's point. Um, that's why when I was talking about that list of uh, characteristics of modernity, I was talking about modernism, not uh, modernity uh, in itself, right? So there's a difference in the way we talk about modernisms, which is a negative frame. Versus the multiple modernities, uh, like both of you said, there's, there's plenty of ways that modernity is helpful and good and that Bavinck and others would subscribe, we, we would subscribe. So that you can see that clearly in Inc's use of Schleiermacher, for example. Uh, Schleiermacher's fundamental material dogmatics is based on the philosophical presupposition that there is a epistemological separation between faith and knowledge, right, the, the kind that James was just pointing out. Uh, Bobink wholly rejects that. That's a modernism. It's a product of Enlightenment thinking. But then he turns and recognizes that in Schlamacher's turn to the self and understanding how important uh, consciousness is in some way for the the epistemology of theology. uh, Bobink says we've got to actually make more use of that. We've got to see that this aspect of uh, modern thought, a turn to the self, as, as it's often Called, is actually really important uh, for understanding the subjectivity of theology and, and the many, many things that that can mean. So, uh, yeah, exactly. There, there are multiple modernities. And, um, but when, when historian sociologists talk about modernism, what they're saying with the ism part is typically uh, Enlightenment philosophical thinking that produces scientism. Uh, Or individualism or all these isms that we normally think of as being somewhat negative right, but in the midst of that there are goods like individuality like experimentation like the scientific. uh, Developments that have made our life so much more tolerable as Bobbing points out Uh, so modernity and modernism uh, I take in in those ways is, is different concepts.
3: There's lots of things that we should be thankful for in the modern world, right? Bobbing oftentimes refrains that the father is still who, who the father who is sovereign over the life of Jesus Christ is the same father who is sovereign over the modern period today. And so, I think what distinguishes neo Calvinism is a sort of optimism, a sort of openness, a sort of horizontalization. Of the christian faith in the sense that the christian faith can engage with any culture including the modern culture that despite all of boving's critiques of modernity or modernism he still continues to say we should be open to it we should be open to the fact that we can learn from it and as corey said the the modern period has showed us the ways in which the human mind is definitely contributing to knowledge it's not just a passive recipient of knowledge not as if we're just recognizing reality in an objective or neutral presuppositionalist way but actually the human mind contributes to it. And there's lots of technological advances in modernity, there's lots of new insights through science and modernity, and so despite uh, the, the limitations of the enlightenment, it actually freed up the freedom of the human conscience to search all of these uh, facets of creation that we really have been blind to prior to modernity. And, and, and Bahavink would even argue that this should also apply to theology, right? If if theology, if Christian theology is truly Catholic, if it's truly universal, universality or Catholicity for Bobbing isn't just about tethering itself to the rule of faith in the past or being creedal and confessional, having a unified confessional identity. But the Catholicity of the Christian church refers to also this leavening and transformative power of the Christian faith, that it can take any culture and actually apply itself to any culture and and. Uh, eleven insights from that culture and show that Christianity makes for a better home for it than other worldviews or other sort of faiths and you see this in uh, his preface to the wonderful works of God which again the wonderful works of God is a is a new edition uh, of, of an older work or an older translation called our reasonable faith the original Duchess magnalia day um, it's using of course a latin term therefore for that title but and that older translation, Our Reasonable Faith by Henry Zilstra, for some reason, he didn't include the preface. And we've mentioned the, the preface before that Bavinck wrote uh, in a previous episode, but but I wonder why they didn't include that preface because it's so insightful in terms of why Bavinck wrote that text. Bavinck wrote that text, he said, because he argued lots of the older 17th century compendiums or summaries of theology shouldn't work anymore. They couldn't work anymore because the modern age is filled with busy people. Uh, people are constantly trying to filter out new information. People are wrestling with new work and new conditions and new questions. And so we can't just keep assigning Wilhelm you know, our reasonable service, as celebrated as that text was. So he wrote um, uh, the wonderful works of God precisely to fill in what he thinks is a 19th, 20th century void. And and this, the strategy for him is not, hey, let's assign an older 17th century text. We need a new text with, an, with, with new emphases and new ways of writing. and and new ways of addressing these new questions. And so there's this sort of openness to say, hey, um, modernity has a lot to teach us and it's raised up new conditions and therefore theology should constantly update itself without compromising the substance of it. So I think that's a very distinctive neo-Calvinistic sort of undertone.
2: Yeah, there's also another way I think, um, this this is very helpful to have like this more balanced approach toward modernity. What I also see, well, here in my context is that people um, people people like say we need to we need to repristinate christianity is about like going back to a certain period for example what a lot of people say is it's very very quick quickly said and often it's just a sign of a lack of arguments or of bad argumentation people saying we need to go back to the time of the apostles and then what follows is what they want to change in the, the church of today. And they just use that argument to whatever agenda they have and they try to to read it in 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 certain texts from the new testament they try to read it into uh church fathers or, or whatever kind of things for example um it's 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 in my context at least often used about the church that the church should like um organize itself in a much lighter way it should move into home churches we we, we shouldn't have like things like the, the office for example in the church um um, and when you have, a, when you have this, the, the way new Calvinism looks, you can never use such arguments because you are always aware that we're not going back to a certain time. We are in this particular part of history and God has brought history to this point, including modern culture. And the question is not that we need to go back to whatever time, uh, but the question is, how are we going to contextualize the gospel into this culture? How, and also to see how God works in this culture. Um, of today. So it's also very helpful against, I think, that danger, and often just a, a certain way of reasoning that just shows a lack of arguments um, for a certain agenda.
0: Yeah, and I think in, in practice, if the church community withdraws into a an alternate community like that, well, it, it doesn't work if, if it's just, unless everyone buys into that together, let's say, because if you have, you know, if you, if, you, if you don't live in a kind of monastic community or something like that together, then all that you have is a church environment that is a withdrawal. Um, but then the people are still negotiating with modernity. You know, every time they make any kind of financial transaction, or when they enter the workplace, or um, when they try and deal with the world around them. So and then you just have a church that doesn't address any of those questions about how to follow Christ. in 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 the entirety of your life when you're not at church or in your home group or something like that or trying to recreate the apostolic era Um, but then if the entire collective forms you know some kind of alternate community and people just live in that seven days a week then the community still has to negotiate with modernity because modernity is still out there around them Um, so the negotiation with modernity is carrying on anyway just whether people are having to do that as individuals or whether it's some kind of collective task but it's yeah. unavoidable and that's one of the strengths of neo-calvinism in a, in, a, in a western context let's say that it's it's such a rich tradition for thinking about how to do that and i think an, an anxiety that i come across is that when people think about modern theology and I, I teach i've just finished teaching a course on modern theology here in edinburgh over the last few months when you look at modern theology so much of it is an attempt to answer the questions of the day by a radical revisionism so you know you retain the packaging of the doctrines, but then the content is changed very fundamentally. But I think that's not what Neo-Calvinism does. And that's for me, that's a, a very attractive feature of the tradition. So it attempts to expand what is there rather than revise it. Um, so one of my former PhD students, um, Cam Clossing, who's now teaching in Sydney in Australia, uh, has a book that's coming out with Oxford University Press on this fairly soon. Um, and it's on how, it's on Bavinck's historical sensibility, and that's something that we've discussed a lot on the on the podcast as well. That neo-Calvinism has a particular sensibility towards history, and again, it's just under the surface or above the surface throughout this conversation as well. But his his book is on the way that Bavinck um, also works on on the doctrine of God, which is you know there's not much that's more important than that in Christian theology, um, in a way that addresses modern questions around the, the nature of personality. Um, but um, and and, you know, and the nature of the absolutes so all these you know 19th century philosophical questions and Bavinck articulates his doctrine of God in a way that responds to those questions and addresses them but not at the expense of what has come before in the tradition so the idea is that the tradition always has room to expand and actually the, the truth about the Christian faith is something that is, is is too large for any one culture to contain anyway or one period in history so wherever you plant it it's always going to keep on growing and expanding and um we should have confidence in, in the truth that it, that it will do so
3: yeah i think one distinction that neo-calvinists often make is between reformation or revolution right that 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 what you're saying there james is that doctrine grows and reforms itself over time which means that it doesn't cause revolutions. There's no revisionism. There is no, let's just get rid of the past and re- rewrite theology in a whole new way, but rather just a sort of organic expansion that, that doesn't denigrate the past, but rather expands from the past. And I think it's, it's really worth emphasizing, James, that, that we're always negotiating with modernity, right? If we are researching and writing with footnotes, for example, and we have to submit ourselves to peer review, right? What I say to my students in Christian thought and philosophy, one of the courses that I teach here at RTS is, if you're writing with footnotes and you're and you're writing with a sense of I can't just make grandeur claims whether backing it up with textual or evidence from from history or things like that, then you're already a modern person because you can't imagine submitting something like Descartes' meditations anymore. And he's a modern person, right? But you notice how modernity has shifted from Descartes' time even to today. You can't imagine just writing Anselm's prosologion anymore, right? And, and submit that for class and expect to get an A or something like that, because you know that. Now, theology is not just an armchair exercise and that it should be done prayerfully, but but it should be submitted with a sense of humility. And what does that humility look like? Submitting your scholarship under peer review, using footnotes, textual evidences to back up your claims, and not just writing in the same old way. So in spite of the sort of, uh, dare I say, pietistic allure of impersonation, of just wanting to go back to the past, we're constantly negotiating with it. We're already writing as modern people by using the modern ways of researching rooted as it is in at fontes and humanism, things like that, there are still modern conditions for writing, but also, you know, read uh, Robert Cavolo's work on fashion theology, the fact that we're using suits and we're wearing suits to teach to formal events, things like that. That's a very modern way of thinking. People didn't used to dress like that. in you know, 16th century, 17th century Geneva, the modern suit is a reflective of an enlightenment way of inhabiting the world. And it has particular philosophical ideological roots. And those, I think, who still want to go for representation are still wearing suits. They're still writing with the sense of I need to write in a scholarly, respectable sort of way uh, in terms of rigor and things like that. And so I think what Bavink would often say is that there's a certain naivete to denying modernity with a, with a, with a small M. And and there's a sort of um, naivete to just say, let's go back to the past, because if you're living to today, God has given you these conditions and you are not a blank slate. You're always within and, and embedded within embodiedly within a particular context.
0: Yeah, so that book, um, Fashion Theology by Robert Cavolo, I-, I found that section on the invention of the modern suit so fascinating as well. In Scotland, if you wear a dark suit to church, that's one of the, like, the social identity markers that says that you are a very conservative Christian who probably doesn't think that modernity is a very good thing. And yet the suit was invented in the French Revolution. Um, so it doesn't go very far back in history and um, has a very distinct modic- uh, like modern history. Um, so yeah, I, I agreed fully with- on that point, um, <laughs> on that point, Gray. So I have a question for t- to pivot this round to Marinus. So a lot of the, like when I first started to explore Neo-Calvinism, I became aware of a lot of criticisms of it, that it's just a very culturally... Naive theology that it's that it's only positive about modernity. And it just, you know, it's the kind of it's a gentrifying theology. It's a way to participate in, you know, capitalists um, culture. And you're just, you know, you're looking for Christian reasons to take part in what everyone else is doing anyway, in a, in a very naive way, not a critical posture towards modernity. I think, you know, with, with Herman Bavinck, um, who had, you know, no better than I know class Schilder. Uh, he died in 1921. So he lived through World War One. And what you see towards the end of Bavink's life is that the negotiation with modernity is not a naive one at all. It's a very difficult thing. You know, if you're committed to this view of of being in history in your own context, where you have to engage with that, sometimes that context is a truly awful thing. And you live in a context of war, for example. So it's not at all like an easy kind of chipper naive, you know, isn't it great that there are all these modern things happening for Herman Bavinck later in his life, especially. But I'm really curious about Klaas Schilder within this tradition. Uh, you know, he, he had a fascinating tale of, of what he was doing in World War Two, you know, he was writing in a hidden location, and um, part of the resistance movements. Um, and we've, you know, one of the things that's been great about this podcast so far is quite often having a kind of Schilder perspective, as a counterbalance to the earlier Neo-Calvinists. So what does Schilder have to say on, you know, like? Optimism towards culture, or, or how difficult was modernity for him to inhabit?
2: Yeah, it's it's I think Schilder is an is an interesting case study in this respect because he what he tried was to bring um, this new Calvinist tradition, which he had like, kind of received from the, the first two giants, uh Barbic and Kuiper, and wanted to, to bring it like into the, the 20th century after World War, World War I um, and also after World War II later on. Um, And it's also precisely on this point that Schilder has received a lot of criticism and was misunderstood in many ways. So I think, like, on the one hand, um, he was and also felt, like, in the way he, he wrote and also the way he did theology, he felt very modern for a lot of people. And a lot of theologians just thought he was way too, like... Way too almost almost vulgar, so to speak, in the way the the way he used language and the way he way he spoke, and also felt like as if you were talking to to Kierkegaard to to some of the much more um, um, other existential philosophers. But that's more in shape than really in I think in content. But the fact that he that his his work breathed the same kind of atmosphere as those philosophers, I think, reveals something about how much Childe wanted to be um, like. A man of his time also in his writing and, and really like, also be modern um, and, and this led to lots of misunderstandings i mean his, his his book christ and culture which has also been translated also already in the 70s and also a new translation um like a, i think it, uh, a decade ago um, he he was actually by some of the the his, his fellow reform theologians um they called they called this book a um, modernism on clogs it's a, it's a famous quote, so modernisme op klompen, entering the church, so a very, like, brutal way of, like, something not orthodox and not good entering the church. Um, it, it felt to them as if Schilder was arguing for a kind of triumphalism, as if Christianity had to become only doing culture and had to, like, almost abandon talk about the cross, about God, about Christ, and just that Christianity would become, um, secular, so to speak, only, only cultural. Um, well, I think what Schilder tried to argue was exactly uh, the opposite of it. I mean, what he, what he tried to say was, is that we need to do culture um, because that is what is the original mandate as Schilder called it. But it's something we can only do if we do that from the church. I mean, nobody, I think no neo calvinist like Schilder emphasized the importance of the institutional church. And without having a strong um, and confessional, we could say, a robust church with a liturgy um, around word and sacrament. There is never going to be any way to do faithful um, cultural work or work in culture. So I think they they like completely misunderstood what he was trying to do um, because of the language, but also because um, because the way the, the, the things he emphasized, um, namely that like yeah, participating in modern culture and, and being in a way was very important, maybe even the, the core of the Christian life, but he never meant that without the church, uh, without Christ. No, it, it needed to be rooted. And he, I think his, his ecclesiology is some way stronger and more radical than uh, Kuypers and Bavings was.
1: So in the spirit of Skilder, let me ask, how, how do you guys think about the way forward? What does it look like, you think, to be uh, orthodox yet modern in the 21st century? What are the ways that you see your own work as uh, participating in modern theology? Um, how, do, how do you think about that? How do you think the listeners uh, should think about that?
0: I guess one way that I think about it is, um, I guess it's derived from the way that I think Abraham Kuyper viewed modernity as a stage for Christianity. So I wrote a chapter a few years ago for the Oxford Handbook to the Reception of Aquinas, um, was edited by um, Matthew Levering and Marcus Plested. so that that came out last year and what I tried to get to grips with there is that for Kuyper and, and this it all fits with that backstory of Thomas Aquinas but basically he thought that Thomas Aquinas had you know in the medieval period had been the cause of a paradigm shift forward or a huge leap forward for Christianity which was that for him Aquinas was the first Christian to um to I guess bring the in so there's an earlier insight that he thinks was the first paradigm shift which is from tom which is from augustine so augustine is the first christian to recognize that christian doctrine is a distinct thing you know that we have a distinct way of talking about and thinking about a particular subject which is god Um, So doctrine is a thing, so God talk is a distinct kind of thing, but then the next paradigm shift was in the medieval period, and that is um, with Thomas Aquinas, because he takes that insight that doctrine is a thing, and he turns it into the summa, so he crafts it into something that's really ornate and spectacular and intellectually very complex, a whole system of thought that is articulated as a system. And then for Kuyper, the third paradigm shift forward actually occurred, he thought, within Neo-Calvinism and the the paradigm shift is that he's trying to move beyond aquinas in recognizing that um that ever that you've got theology as a distinct avenue of inquiry about god but beyond that you also have all these other avenues of inquiry as well all the other academic disciplines so the paradigm shift that occurs with neo-calvinism kuiper thought was the recognition that actually christianity the lordship of christ needs to be brought to bear on all of those disciplines in a way that respects their integrity and their uniqueness but also that uh, allows them to flourish most fully under the the lordship of christ as, as king over overall uh, so that's a paradigm shift forward okay but part of the story of that paradigm shift for Kuiper is modernity and is the enlightenment so with he thinks that if you go back pre-enlightenment you're talking for a very long period about Christendom where Christianity doesn't need to fight you know for every every kind of inch of its existence across every terrain of life because it has this almost unassailable um, dominance in Western culture so Christianity primarily focuses its efforts on theology and on theological explicitly theological terrain and then beyond that um, there's a kind of tacit approval of Christianity everywhere so it doesn't really have to fight for its life on all of these different fronts. But because of modernity, because of the Enlightenment, it now has to. Um, also in the realm of, of you know what you could think of very straightforwardly as theology, but on every other area of life as well. Um, Christianity is, you know, there's this active desire to exclude Christianity and christendom is gone in effect um so you just don't have that tacit approval that you meet everywhere that christianity is assumed to be a good thing that's gone and because of that christianity has to step forward in making a positive case for itself um, in every area of life also in every area of the life of the mind every part of society and Kuiper thought that christianity has the resources to do that precisely because it's a catholic faith and this was the first time in its history uh you know from like the Edict of Milan onwards so that's what was like 313 you know so a really long time ago this is the first time in that very long history since then that um the Christianity has had to make this positive case for itself and it has the resources to precisely because it is Christianity uh, it's this Catholic faith so I think that informs I guess how I think about um you know what you can do with this modern and orthodox idea today uh, i certainly don't think that i live in christendom in scotland in 2021 it's it's also you know it's, it's also a social context where um you know christianity has to make its own positive case for what it means in every area of life uh, the life of the mind, the life of society, uh, how I live as as an individual within that society. Uh, so neo-Calvinism offers tremendous resources there in a way that I think, you know, if you only think about neo-Calvinism with a very superficial critique of, you know, neo-Calvinism is just all triumphalism, and it's not at all. Um, it, transformation is not triumph um within neo-calvinism so neo-calvinism isn't a a kind of bombastic or at least it shouldn't be you know bombastic aren't we great because we've got everything sorted way of doing theology in the modern age um transformation is is quite often means that you're really against the grain of the modern age um but you think you've got the resources in christianity to do that so i find it really helpful in that regard curious to know what you guys think though?
3: oh james it's a such a wonderful statement there to emphasize that 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 because of the Enlightenment, because of the conditions of modernity, there's a sort of wakening up unto itself. Theology has to wake up to the fact that it has to justify itself now. It can't just take for granted that it's relevant for all of life. Kuiper actually talks about how Immanuel Kant sort of woke up theology from its slumbers. I think he's, he's probably appealing to the way in which Kant thought that Hume woken him up from his dogmatic slumbers. Well, Kant well, Kuiper up to his dogmatic slumbers. He's realizing now that theology has to not only um, presuppose that it's the queen of the sciences, for example, but that it's the agent of unity for the organism of knowledge, that it actually has to justify its relevance for all of life. And I think that's exactly right. And and Kuiper thinks this is for the good, because we don't know how it's relevant for every area of life. And maybe we never did. We just sort of assumed it tacitly. We've never articulated it. And we need to do a good job in doing that today. And I think moving forward, we need to continue to to show and not only tell that theology is relevant for for every area of life. And that sort of persuasive demonstration is key, I think, for the liveliness and for the vitality of the Christian faith. I think if we're thinking about Christianity and modernity, we've talked about a plurality of modernities. We need to, to also think about global theology, the way in which Christianity continues to have an ongoing relevant message for not only the Western world, but also the majority world, right? And I think if, 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 if the Western world, there's this gradual unfolding unto itself from the early modern period to the late modern period to the Enlightenment to post-modernity, I think one way in which we can articulate modernity in the context of, let's say, Asia, the context that I'm most familiar with, is not this unfolding that is gradual from early modernity to post-modernity, but rather we see this clash, we, we're seeing postmodernity modernity clashing with a, a, a culture and an area that has never even gone through an Enlightenment period, if that makes sense. And so I see staunch sort of dogma and traditionalism, because you can hear my baby hear my baby really clearly all right very nice to have all kira right.
0: making her first appearance on grace and common well Tend to uh, be a
3: regular guest on the show uh, this this is the conditions of modernity walk working from home over zoom with the baby um in the background right what was i, I was talking about the clash between post-modernity and traditionalism in asia right mm-hmm. yeah so um so so I, if, if the western world there's this conscious awareness of this gradual unfolding again in asia there's this Clashed between post-modernity, this search for authenticity, of freedom, of expression of the individual self, on the one hand, and really just corporate traditionalism in Asia. I, there's no other way to talk about it. I think, you know, you see this in terms of epistemology, in Asian ways of thinking. You know, quoting your great grandfather is more authoritative than uh, researching something on Google or actually researching it from the latest sort of book in the the most scholarly. Uh, sort of avenues, right? Um, I've had countless of conversations where I would communicate that, hey, actually, Christian theology is this. And I'd be citing, say, a recent publication from Oxford University Press, or something like that, you know, or, or whatever other uh, uh, good scholarly avenue. And then um, someone would say, no, but my grandfather told me this. And that's the end of the conversation. There's no way of, of going forward. And so, so to me, I think, how does Christianity speak to a context where there's this great epistemological clash, uh, a great clash of differing common sense intuitions, common with a small c, right? There's common to the Western way of thinking, and there's common to the Asian way of thinking. And I think that that whole idea of impersonation just doesn't work. So I think how Christianity can communicate itself in this sort of clash is to communicate that Christianity can accommodate, and it's not tethered to... Either east or west. There's this. Um, there's a. There's a third way forward, and that Christianity can say, "Hey, how and why is there differing intuitions in the world? How can we accommodate and also account for these differing intuitions in the world? Is there a way in which Christianity can accommodate tradition, authoritarian senses of epistemology alongside with individual authenticity? And I think if you ally Christianity just to one culture, you, and, and you're saying, you know, that's the golden age of Christianity. You're sort of implicitly communicating that Christianity is localized in a particular time and in a particular place. And when you try to communicate that to Asia, they, that just sounds honestly like Western imperialism. You're saying, oh, that's the Christian view of the world. That's the Christian culture. Well, you're communicating to me then that I need to go back to 17th century you know, England or something like that. So, so trying to communicate it, the ways in which Christianity can accommodate a plurality of intuitions is really, really important to me.
0: Yeah, and I think alongside that too, um, just to say very briefly, um, it's also a reality that you know, modernity is is a global thing. Um, it's not something that is hermetically sealed off in the Western world. So the history of modernity is all about globalization too, and um, there's a kind of spread of secular modernity as well that's been going on for a really long time. So there are probably few places in the world where you could go to meet people who are utterly untouched by um, the process of modernization in the west and um, christianity is is also as globally interconnected as um, the general human culture across the world or the exchange of human cultures and i think for people outside of the west for christians outside of the west neo-calvinism offers them a really useful set of resources to understand a critique of modernity a christian critique of it an interaction with it f- that began within the west and was very localized but that's also extremely thoughtful about how to do that and that also can do the things that you were just saying gray as well account for the, the again the cultural diversity of christianity across the world so um you know i guess you, you sometimes come across um um you know, people from like mainland China, for example, who want to understand the West. So part of that attempt to understand will mean that they read like Max Weber in order to understand um, capitalism. They think they have to, have to understand Protestantism and Calvinism and so on. So there is that kind of sensibility in some parts of the world outside the West that to make sense of it, you, you do need to do some reading of theological sources. But I think neo-Calvinism is probably an underutilized resource in that regard as well.
2: Yeah, it's also maybe, it reminds me also of something that Schilder um, does, maybe just as an example of, of like realizing what a change in the course of history um, has to, what kind of effects it has for theology, like he Schilder became a pastor in the when World War I broke out, and you see him reflecting on what does it mean that this war um, is going on in Europe. And he actually mentions, um, I think it was in 1917 or something, uh, that he, he has this kind of vision of Christianity shrinking in the West. And he has this quote saying, like, um, we need our brothers from overseas in the future. We're going to need them because he has this maybe this, this feeling or anticipation that it's going to wane here. And that the 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 weight is going to move into another to other continents, and it's exactly what has happened 100 years later. Um, and and maybe just another example: the, the neo-Calvinism is famous for the distinction between the church's organism and its institution. Um, and I think Schilder, he he criticized this this distinction. He, he wanted to develop it further. Um, and put more emphasis on the church as institution. And I think it is it was exactly because of the changing context he was in and he, he saw happening around him, um, which makes him emphasize the church as the church as an institution almost in a way that um, maybe now someone like Jamie Smith is doing it and um, saying that like the secular context we are in, we, we very much need a robust church. Um, we need um, the institution of the church just in order to to survive and to remain connected and to to continue as christians um, just as an example to show how how the tradition like needs to develop and also it's good to criticize things that we emphasized earlier and that a new context um, a new kind of modernity also needs a different kind of uh, a different kind of theology
0: Guys, this has been a fascinating conversation, thinking about neo-Calvinism and the modern Um, together. I've learned a lot from talking to each of you. Thanks to our listeners for joining us as well. Um, As always, if you enjoy the podcast, if you find it helpful, please subscribe and whichever podcast app you use, please leave us a review as well. You can also always reach out to us on social media um, uh, or um, by email. The address—I forget the address every single time. It's Grace and Common at Gmail right? Yes by some point in like series nine of this i will finally remember it so grace in common podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you with any ideas that you have uh, for things that you'd like to hear us discuss i think on the basis of this episode we will be recording an, another one at some point on how to read modern philosophy and theology again that's something that the tradition does quite distinctly and that that we're all quite passionate about in our own ways um, but for now thanks for tuning in it's been great to have you with us this is grace and common <laughs>